Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Roots Running Sessions. I'm Richie Hansen, coach of the Roots Running Project. And in this episode, I sit down with our three guys that ran the Chicago Marathon. Willie Milam set a six-minute PR on the day running 214. Alex Monroe set a 12-minute PR on the day running 214. And Noah Drotti set a five-minute PR running 211. It was a good day across the board for our group, and for these three in particular, it was a big positive step forward in terms of what their potential might be at the distance. All three had kind of subpar first experiences at the marathon, so Chicago served as not only some redemption to prove that they belonged, but a good momentum builder heading into the Olympic trials in February. So I hope you enjoy hearing about the race from their perspective, and if you like the content we're providing... Consider subscribing to our podcast on iTunes or following along on Instagram at roots underscore running. We'll also be rolling out some new gear in the next month on our website. So consider supporting our group by picking up one of those items when they go on sale. Thank you for all your support and on to the episode. And so then going into this, I had a lot of confidence in where your guys' fitness was, but until you do it, that fear is still there that, okay, if all three of you bonk again, now what the fuck do we do? Thank you for tuning in to another edition of our Roots Running Sessions podcast. Today we are recapping the Chicago Marathon experience for our three guys that were in that race. Uh, we have uh, Noah Drotti, Alex Monroe, and Willie Milam here. Um, so guys, go ahead go around just say your name and then your time just to get us kicked off here this is willie here and 214.54 and that was a pr from grandma's which was your debut of how much five and a half right five and a half. about five and a half minutes no Adrati, 211 seconds don't matter Seconds, That's seconds, true. Yeah. seconds don't matter. And that you had uh Rotterdam back in spring, that was two eighteen, two nineteen. You had Chicago. 19. Chicago <laughs> was two sixteen in twenty seventeen. Mm-hmm. So PR of about five minutes, mm-hmm. roughly. Yeah. Alex Monroe, two fourteen fifteen. And your debut was New York in twenty eighteen. Um biggest debut of the day, twelve minutes, but yes, also context of the New York day was also relative at play with, with the bonk being pretty hard. Yeah. So we'll still take the 12 minutes. We'll still take the 12 minutes. People love to hear that. <laughs> yeah. 12 minute PR. Yeah. Such a shock. Let's do it again. One more time. 202. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, going into the race, uh, knowing that all three of you were coming off subpar expectation performances subpar being the nice way of putting it because all of us had expected all three of you to run better going into that last day how was your approach to this race knowing that the time was the focal point we wanted good experiences your fitness was also in a good spot coming in was it tough to wrap your head around the confidence going into the race knowing what the goal was was the fear still there that you would have a similar experience as the past marathon? How was it going into this day? Well, I'll just start <clears throat> further back, pretty far back, just, uh, when we decided we're all three doing Chicago. Um, I feel like there were two things. Is one, we were excited to have another crack at the marathon and actually have a good experience, and like we did have hopefully huge PRs, but we're also really excited about uh, – almost our entire team doing Chicago and having, you know, training partners and buddies the whole, the whole way through. So that was really exciting. And we all kind of decided to do it together when there was that two eleven thirty. So we were kind of just going all in all together, which made it a lot more exciting, a lot more, uh, a lot more manageable, I think, especially coming from subpar marathon debuts or marathon experiences. So I think that was, that was really exciting from like the early, get-go yeah and this was before they had changed the standard so two eleven thirty was kind of a focal point for all three of you when we had decided to target this race what about you two going in expectations versus previous experience um i was confident going into chicago i, I mean but i really thought i was in two eleven shape going into rotterdam and i ran so terribly in rotterdam that the 
really the only thing you could chalk it up to was just like a really bad day. And so while the experience was unfortunate, I knew that my like four months leading up to Rotterdam were really, really good. And then so once I finally got my feet under me in the Chicago buildup and I started doing training that was similar to that, if even a little bit better, I was like, okay, now I've had essentially a whole year of training to run around 211, which is about what I thought I could run at 210 high on like a great day. And so, you know, towing the line, I knew I had that fitness behind me and I was, uh, my slogan in the buildup was house money, just be grateful for the opportunities that I've had. And, you know, I can't lose anything because I've already ran so poorly at the marathon. Um, I was also aware that I was probably running out of chances to perform at a world marathon major, um, at least in the capacity of an invited athlete, if I were to throw down another bad time. And so I was aware of the career implications at stake, but I was still um, just excited to get there. And I knew that if I just had an okay day, I'd run something I'd be proud of. Yeah, I knew I was going to improve just based off of, you know, we'll call it what it was. New York was really poor, and so it was just a matter of by how much I would improve over the distance. I was pretty hesitant to do another one, but um, as the buildup went on, I started to get more and more confident and uh, ended up waking up race morning feeling more calm than I probably ever have. Um, I was disappointed to not bring the 211.30 to fruition, even when they took that standard out of the, you know, out of the way, I still wanted to run around that, um, to be able to run that pace for 22 miles, you know, I'm still really proud of that and to be able to kind of, um, manage what became a really hard last 5k and still kind of do a little damage control and run 214. I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. Yeah, no, you had made the comment going in that like, even though the, the standard was not something that was necessarily needed to be hit. It was still something that was like just for validation was was nice to go after. Yeah, I mean, if you look at our sport in a global context, I mean, two eleven is still the Olympic standard, and so I think if you want to consider yourself to be a contender to make an Olympic team, like you really have to have a mark that's somewhere around there, or at least know that you're capable of a mark like that on a good day. Um, and so, it, it was a good number to to shoot for still, even though whether we have it or not is you know, kind of meaningless in terms of making the team. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, on the day, so many people ran well that to just put yourself in that company of like going into 2016 trials, if you're a 212, 213 guy, you were in the 10 contenders to make the team. Now there's 13 guys with that standard going into 2020 trials. It's the standard is being raised across the board nationally that one, it's an exciting time to be part of that because you're seeing a resurgence of American marathoning. But it also raises the level of expectation. Anytime you toe the line, you're more inclined to kind of take a swing at one of those faster times in order to prove that you belong on the national scale. Yeah, I think we have a lot of American runners who are trying to be marathoners right now, which is uh, which is a fun time. And I think a lot of people are just barely scratching the surface. Now, on race day, there was a big group of American guys going out. We knew that the day, the day ahead of time. And it was kind of cool in the press area where a lot of the athletes were getting together and coaches and saying, okay, so what's our plan for the day? We knew that there was going to be pacers going in two guys from NAZ elite, uh, Sid Vaughn and Matt Baxter, Matt Baxter doing the primary leading duties of that. Um, that had to have been a cool experience once the gun went off to have that cluster of guys automatically right there together even though we'll get to her in a second, Bridget Koski was ahead of you guys at that point. Yeah, I I made the decision within the first 30 seconds of the race that I didn't want to run alone. I had kind of gone back and forth with if there was a secondary pack, I wanted to kind of make up ground over the second half of the race. Uh, but once I realized the wind was uh, pretty tough, depending on which direction you're going on, I decided to tuck in with the group. Um, and so we went through half, almost perfect. But yeah, for that first 10K... Um, I was wondering why we weren't really gaining on uh, Bridget. Um, and so, yeah, it was uh, pretty crazy to go through half that fast and still feel really comfortable. Because um, I think you guys were on five flat pace that first 5K. Yeah, I mean, I only had one or two miles under five flat. The rest were all five flats or 502, something like that. Yeah. Noah, with the race playing out with the group <laughs> of guys like that, uh, kind of nice to be able to kind of change up 
where you were within the pack. Yeah, and it was really cool for me. I love watching uh, the Japanese marathons because you always see like big groups of guys running fast, and and I've always been kind of jealous of not having that opportunity at a lot of domestic marathons just because there isn't the density of talent. And so, uh, yeah, to be in that field at Chicago and be like, hey, there's like 15 guys here, like, you know, this is such a great opportunity. And uh, after the tech meeting, I made kind of a beeline over to Matt Baxter and Sid, the Pacers, and I was like, okay, how fast are we, like, really going out? And they assured me it'd be closer to 65.30, and I was like, perfect. Like, there's no real reason not to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of other guys had the same idea. It's like, you know, this is a good chance to shoot a shot. Willie, we made the decision the day before the race with you to go out a little bit more conservative. Your uh, buildup wasn't the most ideal coming off grandma's being your debut back in June. You had some iron, low iron issues going on through August. You also had a lot of travel that was happening. So the buildup wasn't as ideal with the guys as we would have liked. Mm-hmm. But on the same token, we knew that you were capable of running a lot faster than what you did at grandma's. And it was still an opportunity to learn the distance. You want to kind of talk about what your mindset was going in, knowing that you weren't going to have that group, but you were going to have to approach it a little bit more conservatively. Yeah, Grandma's was a good first marathon experience where I bumped pretty hard and was not prepared mentally or physically. But you had that group at Grandma's. I had a group. I had a good group for a long time, a lot of the Zap guys. Um, but yeah, I, I bonked. I had a lot I had to work on, but I was still excited to run and run the marathon. And there was that 2.11.30 and everyone was doing Chicago and it was exciting. And then training started up again, 2.11.30 seemed very hard. And then I started to have those bumps in the road that you mentioned in the, in the buildup. And uh, thankfully, when they took that 2.11.30 uh, requirement away, it actually kind of relieved some pressure on me because then it just allowed me to focus on taking a big step forward in the marathon and not going from 2.20 to 2.11.30, which uh, I kind of thought about a lot, which was kind of daunting. But leading, throughout the buildup, I had a lot of uh, setbacks and then leading into the race, we talked about how how could I have the best experience and take that step forward that we're talking about. And it, it, we heard about Noah and Alex with the Pacers going out at 6530. That just seemed uh, a little faster than what I felt prepared for. So I was going to go out conservative um, and just kind of feel as good as I could through half and progress and treat it as like a progression race, which I think was what suited me best. Um, and it turns out that there was no one else between 2.11 and 2.18, basically. So I was by myself, and that was pretty hard. But it was still it was still fun. Well, and then you had the unfortunate, fortunate experience of being right around the eventual world record holder. Oh, yeah. Talk about a little bit of the chaos that you experienced during the race, because you and I talked about after, like, between the press vehicle, the, like, trying to decide where you should position yourself on the roads because of the people on the press truck. Yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty chaotic actually. I mean, for the first like six, seven miles, she was ahead of me by quite a bit. And then there was all those guys who went out too fast, who ended up going back to like 219, 220. And I, I knew I just was like the first six, seven miles didn't really matter that much. I was still on pace, but everyone else just goes a little too hard. So I was kind of just working my way through just running by myself. And then I caught up to Bridget at like mile seven or eight and I see all the pace trucks and the motorcycles with the NBC broadcasts, and I can see the average projected pace, and I realize we're on the 213 pace. And for about mile 8 till mile 21, 22, I was kind of, they were just kind of around, and I, I was ahead of them for most of the time, and then they catch back up, the pace was Bridget, and then I was kind of just like, the trucks and the motorcycles were hovering around me, and they were on the right side and the left side, and then there were turns, and I had to like talk to the truck guys in the truck about which side I was going to go on and which side they were going to turn. And I had to surge at like a couple turns and it was all just kind of crazy. And I knew if I tried to surge way like ahead of them to not deal with it, I, that would have been too much energy to use. And I didn't want to drop, drop back too far because then I was slowing my pace down unnecessarily. So it was like, it was this weird, like mental decision, like all these, un, uh, I, I couldn't predict all these decisions I had to make during the race. Um, it distracted me a little bit, which was great. That was kind of fun. And it was like a unique experience. So I was trying to enjoy it, but it was also kind of annoying at times. For someone that doesn't like to make decisions. I hate decisions. So that was like the worst worst case scenario. Um, but it was still, <laughs> I, uh, it was still, I had something to think about during the race. And by the time we got to like mile 21, 22, I think all that, all those decisions and all like the surges and running by myself into the wind, 
I was feeling kind of drained. Um, and that's, I think, where it kind of took a toll on me as the last 5K, just over 5K is when I, my body and mentally, I was just feeling a bit uh, just drained in, in the energy that I needed to really, you know, get home hard. So it was, a, it was weird. It was wild. We'll take a wine pour break here for a second. <laughs> for your wine. Have the soothing noise in the background of the podcast. Ali and I were running up on the dirt roads today, and I heard the drain in the ditch, and it sounded like a car coming up around a blind turn. It was like it went from soothing to stressful very quickly. Where were you? Like, you know, going to Prospect. Oh, yeah. Every time I think that there's a car about to fucking destroy me. Yeah, it's like that one turn. And we're not chewing in the microphone, so for those of you that have misophonia, I do. Is that a word? Misophonia? Yeah. What is misophonia? When you hear when people chew? chewing, it bothers you. It's, oh, yeah. It's way worse on a microphone, too. It's, it's the worst. Never listen really. to, what's the Portland Trailblazers podcast where he's always eating? Oh, CJ McCollum? Yeah, his podcast. He's oh, always, like, pod? chewing on, like, chips hey, or... Yeah. We're Blazers fans here. That's chips. not a scene. <laughs> some chips right now. That sounds good. I almost got chips, but I thought it was going to be a, too loud for this podcast. You should have just gotten this Jello. Yeah. Podcast. Eating Jello. Back to the podcast. And, and that's we're, we're back. <laughs> Commercial break. Um, Buck Willie. <laughs> so, guys, with you having a group as big as you did, you guys had about 20, 21 there for a little bit. And then even at mile 18, there was still about 13, 14 in that group. Did you find any challenges kind of navigating the, the bottle tables? Were you guys communicating with each other? I luckily, you know, I sat at the back pretty much the entire way just to, I mean, I had no business really pushing up front. It was fast enough. So I kind of stayed in the back and luckily I was, you know, the first table. So I was getting my bottles pretty easily, but I, I watched as a lot of other people struggled in front of me. Um, there were only a few uh, areas where some people had some trouble, like really early on through 10K, there was a situation where a bunch of bottles got knocked over, but um, I really had no trouble navigating it, um, and I actually, you know, was getting advice from some people in the back about, you know, when to start taking fluids after I got my bottle, like, don't drink it right away, get back into the pack, and then start drinking. That actually was some good advice, you know, um, that helped me quite a bit, uh, but I, I was able to stay out of danger pretty much through 22. Yeah, I was in a pretty good flow of positioning, and I felt like I could maneuver in and out of the aid stations fine in, in the crowd, and... No one was, uh, you know, impeding me in any way, so I was pretty pretty content in the group. I didn't have any problems with bottles. How did the fluid sit with all you guys? The fluid sat great. The gel, on the other hand, was pretty cold, and so it felt like I was chewing it rather than freezing, uh, chasing it down with water. So that bottle was probably my hardest, uh, but I was uh, successful in getting all of it down, which was uh, positive. Yeah, and you guys were using the Martin's gels, and this was the first time you've really had to use those in a race. It's yeah. a thicker consistency than most other gels. That was mostly fine. I, I threw up a lot at the end, but uh, I stomached it for two hours and 11 minutes. Yeah. Just all you needed. Yeah. I forgot how much I was supposed to drink out of the bottle, so I didn't too much. But you, you said it's half I, I forgot. There was, a line. <laughs> there was a line there for you guys. I was too stressed out about other things happening. Now, in the in the mode of racing, obviously you guys are there for a time, so you're trying to clip off splits as, as efficiently as you can, but your body is kind of going through waves of like feeling good to not feeling good. What's it like managing the stress of that in the race? Like, are you talking to yourself? Are you just trying to throw in a surge to kind of change up how your body's feeling? Um, I felt generally pretty static for most of the most of the way until the end, so... Um, I do remember waves of anxiety in my first marathon, and so I think I was a little bit more prepared for this. And so when I hit mile 10, I wasn't thinking, oh my God, I have 16 more. Um, I managed my thoughts a lot better. Um, my hamstring was get, got kind of bad early, and so I was getting nervous, thinking that if it got much worse, I didn't know if I'd be able to continue running, but... I even dropped back at one point and like kind of mentioned it to Alex, and I think that was probably the peak of my anxiety. But yeah, I thought that was funny last night when you shared that story, mm. and you asked Alex how he was feeling. He's like, "I'm good," and you're like, 
Cool. Cool. Talk to you later. Uh, no, I asked him how he was doing. No, he did. Yeah, I, I, I asked played about his hamstring. Yeah, I played it up last night a little he bit did. for dramatic yeah. effects. Threw me in the bus. Desperate, <laughs> desperate for a laugh. Um, but no, that never, that never got to the point I was worried about. And so once I got within striking distance of the finish, I kind of let that go too. And um, yeah, luckily, luckily enough, I didn't have any real lows um, early in the race. Yeah, I kind of was feeling so good to the point where I thought it was a little um, suspicious. Uh, so I kind of was like, okay, well, don't do anything crazy. Um, I had a few miles where I felt a stitch coming on, so I would take a couple deep breaths, got rid of it. Uh, but other than that, I, I really felt amazing until I didn't, which was, again, around 22. And at that point, it was like, okay, you know, how quickly can I get to the finish without uh, completely losing it? And... Um, you know, I was really struggling there at the end, but I will say that, you know, I did my best off of the, the quick pace through, through halfway. Oh, I had to talk to myself a lot. It's just cause I was by myself. Um, but also because there was just a lot of stretches of a little harder, uh, you know, straight roads with a little more wind somewhere, you know, a little tailwind. Some I was, uh, I, I was felt a little, I was running a little slow. But I really just tried to calm myself down and tell myself to just go easy, go easy, go easy. Because on my first marathon, I was like so hyped the first half marathon, the first 13 miles of the race. And by the time I got to like 16, 17, I could already feel like, oh man, I was using up way too much energy. Even just with the excitement of thinking that I, I really focused on the first like 15 miles, just like trying to make it feel as easy as a jog. Um, and then, you know, not getting freaked out if I was a little too slow in some splits or a little too fast. So I was, I was kind of just talking to myself like, uh, a lot throughout the race just to keep myself even keel and steady. And I think, I think that's something that you kind of just learn to do more marathons. It's really, um, a lot of waves you go through in marathons. And I think you learn more and more as you do more marathons, but, um, I felt like I handled a lot better throughout this marathon. Immediate feelings post-race, like it was good PRs for all of you guys, but I feel like, Noah, you put it best right when I got to the tent was it was a good day, but we have work to do. Yeah, I was a little frustrated in how I competed over the last 10K, and I finished eighth in the American field, which I definitely would have liked to have been higher in 17th, I think, overall. And so it was like the time was a huge relief, and if I would have run the same time but been the second or third American on a different day, I would have been really happy. So, but those were just my, like, immediate competitive instincts, and as soon as that wore off, I was like, great, you know, I'm really happy to run that time, but again, I thought that I was capable of that time back in April, and so it didn't necessarily feel like a huge breakthrough, it felt more like, okay, like, now what's on paper lines up with where I think I actually am, um, but I think I can be a lot better, um, if I string a couple together. So I was like, yeah, good step, but like that's not the final destination. Yeah, I think immediately I felt some relief just knowing that I put together a half decent marathon. Uh, but then every runner and their competitiveness um, will kind of go through a wave after that that points out kind of what went wrong, if there what were things that you could improve on. And so I was pretty frustrated to get to 20 and feel so good and think, okay, maybe I'll take a risk here with 6.2 to go. And then at 22, my body just was not going to let me do anything like that. And thinking back to training, you know, I did a lot of stuff with fast finishes. So to not be able to put that to use was frustrating. Um, and so I kind of got to a point where I was like, okay, well, what would have happened? You know, would I have run to 11 if maybe I did one more fast finish? But you can't really go through that. Um, you could play that game forever. So I kind of took it as a win, um, took it as a step forward, but I know now that I'm going to have to be ready to take a risk um, come February to put myself in, a, in the conversation after two goes at it. Well, and like you said, you got to 22 kind of feeling relatively good, and then it was 22 to the finish that you started seeing your, yourself slip a little bit. And the unfortunate part of the way that the wind conditions were on that day, you guys had some wind the last two and a half miles. Mm. So when you started slipping, now you're by yourself, you're fighting the wind all alone, makes it a little bit harder because you were still, your projected finish was still on 212 pace with 2K to go. 
And so most of it had to have been in that last 3K to 5K that the pace really kind of dropped off. But that's also going into that headwind. Yeah, I mean, the advice that you gave me was like, you don't want to be in no man's land with on that stretch. And that's exactly what happened to me. And so I felt like I was getting blown around. Um, I tried tucking into one side or the other, and it just wasn't making too much of a difference. Um, So I did what I could to get to the finish, but there's a lot to work on as far as the last 5K for me. Yeah, from my understanding, the hardest sections were, what, 12 to 16 for the wind, and then that final two-and-a-half-mile stretch? Yep. Could you guys notice the wind being in the group that you guys were in? I know you noticed the wind because you were Mm -hmm. kind of fighting it by yourself. It was getting tossed around, especially in the last two miles. I could really feel it. Yeah, that's where I felt it most is if I was by myself in that last two miles. Yeah. 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 Agreed. Agreed. But (laughs) you were still able to kick by somebody, which has been something that – has been a challenge to build up. I'm a big, strong man, so <laughs> uh, no, I I think I managed my effort well enough that I still had something left um, at the end to to run strong. I mean, my my pace I think over that last two k was like five oh six or five oh seven, so I slipped a little bit, but I was definitely uh, able to make a couple moves when when those guys came back to me. Now you said, I mean. Yeah, you slipped a little bit, but I think that's also a reflection of the guys that you were with, too, because you said around 10K there was kind of a little surge that happened, or 22 where Matt Baxter dropped off, where there was a surge, and so you start going through that wave of thoughts of, okay, I know I'm having a good day. If I go with the surge, do I blow up? If I don't go with the surge, do I maintain and run the time? And that's something that's like, I mean, Willie, you went through that same thought. What was that, Houston, when you had that big breakthrough of 63 minutes at the time? That like at a certain point you're trying to hit the time, and then at a, you, once you get past that, you can start getting greedy a little bit because now that mark is there. You're kind of focusing on that first step rather than just jumping multiple steps at once because you're scared you might fall. Yeah, you might fall, mm-hmm. and so like it's it's one of those when I when I saw that 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 was kind of in your in your thought process of 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 what was happening in the the moment it's like I don't fault you at all for that because it's like you're trying to make sure that you secure what you came to do because who knows two miles later you end up blowing up but at the end of the day too now you know you can do it the chance to take those risks becomes a little bit easier in the future yeah I agree I mean I was telling everyone coming in that like while I yes I had time goals my number one goal is have a positive marathon experience and so I felt like I really protected that goal you know, in that last 10K when the split happened. And, like, in hindsight, could I have taken a risk and gone with them? Like, sure, but if I would have blown up and run 216 again, it wouldn't have been worth it. And so, yeah, there is something to just, like, hoisting yourself up to the next step and then just, like, call it good. Um, And I think that's what I was kind of focused on that day. So that was the smart move. You know, it's not, like, a sexy move. But it, it was smart. The sexy move is for Atlanta. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's, when, you that's when you go go big or go home. Yeah, no. Those would be the sexy moves. Keep well, it sexy. And Keep that's sexy. that's when we were kinda of, when I was kinda of going over all of your guys' races in my head on the flight home. Like, that's exactly right. You played it you played it smart, you gauged your effort well, you were still able to have something left at the end to kick by another competitor. Alex, you came within two K of having a time so similar to what the rest of those American guys did. And Willie, you pretty much soloed a 214 into the wind. So it's like a less than ideal buildup. It's a pretty good day all around, but there's still things that we know that we can work on as a whole. This was one to go after time, trying to find some rhythm, get some confidence with the distance. Now going into Atlanta, that's one where it's like, it's strategy when you try to make a move. When do you not? Do you go with the move when it's made? If it's made early, do you not? It's less about time. It's not going to be a consistent pace with the hills. How do you approach that mentally a little differently given the format than this one where it's all about time, you're checking splits? You may not even wear a watch when it comes to trials because you're going to be focused so much on effort. Yeah, I think... Uh... I'm hoping it suits the cross-country runner in me. I, I've heard that it, it kind of undulates, and um, I've always liked the rhythm breakers. I'm a big fan of the Bartlick, and so I'm really hoping that that plays to my strengths, but I also know that um, 
it's going to be a completely different style of race. And so going into a, uh, a competition where it's mainly just about place, um, it's going to be much different from Chicago. And so that requires different preparation, especially for um, something that means an Olympic team. So um, I haven't really thought about it at all. I don't think I have a very good appreciation for the course yet. Um, and I'm just not ready to think about it. He's not worried. I'm not worried. He's not worried at all. <laughs> it's the big flex of the podcast. Yeah. He's so cool. I'm not worried at all. Guaranteed. I get excited because I don't know enough yet to really judge it, but uh, it's hilly, so you gotta, I mean, there's, everyone's gonna be incorporating a lot more hills into their training, and it's also gonna be, like, part of the key, probably. I mean, it's gonna be a lot, a lot of surges, a lot of moves being made. I mean, it's like the biggest race for some people, so... It's going to be pretty chaotic, pretty wild. Um, so it's going to be a very different experience. But I think Chicago is huge because it was for us, it was a huge step personally and for ourselves to um, step forward in, in the marathon, in, in the distance, which you kind of need. You need that experience. You need that positive, you know, that background in the marathon to be able to compete at, you know, that tri- at the trials. So I think we made the, a huge step personally. And, and then it's, you know, it's the step after that is where you start to compete next level he's got that base confidence you guys had the luxury willie obviously it was a less than ideal build-up but it was still a relatively healthy build-up mm-hmm. and so all you guys had healthy build-ups um it's hard to replicate cycles it's also natural to want to push the envelope going into something like the olympic trials which is something that i need to keep myself confined to because i i, I want to make sure you guys are healthy on the day um what what do you feel that if you had to pinpoint the biggest aspect of your day at Chicago of things that you either felt you uh, neglected or wish you had more of or something that you felt like you lacked in the in the moment um, that you wish or that that, you know, is something you want to address in the future? What do you think that would be? I think my long runs were lacking. Um I think I, I don't think I had a couple impressive long runs, but I think there was probably a little more junk mileage in there than I necessarily needed, and some of that was just like coincidentally I felt terrible on those days. But like I think especially going into a race like Atlanta seems to be like those will come in handy, and so I think I did enough. But if there was something lacking, I think it was probably the quality of my longer days. Yeah, and for you, I think this was also a good step in terms of overall volume because it was the most consistently you were high. Um, even though some of those long runs were a little bit slower consistently, um, it was also something that uh, the way that it was balanced, we know that we can add more of those in and the confidence will be higher to be able to hit those while also staying healthy in the, the process of doing that. Um, I agree with 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 you on that. I saw... Um, I think it was you that was saying yesterday, like uh, having in a little bit more of the, the longer efforts of the progression runs would have also been helpful because we didn't get that many of them. Yeah, I mean, I think I did one more than these guys did just do the racing. Yeah. Um, but that being said, I don't, I don't know that it would hurt to add one or two more if, if the body allows. Um, so I, I think I really benefited from those just based off of how much further I made it in the race still in contention to run well. Yeah, I mean, I talked to you, Richie, about this. Um, the two things I really want to incorporate more are the longer, more longer runs, um, just to be have your body prepared to be on your feet and run hard for a long time, and also to work in the progressions towards the end so you can run hard on tired legs and feel pain when you're tired. Because that's really a big thing about the marathon is being able to push through when you, your mind is telling you that your body's dying. But you can always do more, and I think practicing that, and to an extent that you don't overdo yourself, but practicing that is really important on that day. Um, so that's something I want to work on for the next one, in addition to building more confidence within myself, because I think that's important and I don't have that sometimes. <laughs> I think your confidence should come from being able to be fairly consistent being alone. It was like it was a time trial for a lot of people, but you had to do the time trial the hard way. And so it was a pretty solid day considering that. Now it's a matter of getting your body in the position that you can tolerate going out at the speed that they went out at. Yeah. And you know that that group at trials, I mean, it's going to be huge the first at least eight miles. Oh, yeah. 
So just just putting yourself in there and giving yourself a chance. Well, it's nice to know dude, that mo- most of this, the crew that ran, you know, the 10 guys on the shoot 12, they're guys that I've raced with and beaten before. So mm-hmm. that's also something that took me about a week to realize <laughs> that got me excited that I have beaten some of the guys who have run to, you know, 211, 210. Now, for the mileage junkies at home, do you guys want to go around and just share kind of what your, about roughly your average and what your peak volume was for this? My peak was 110, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. My average? Probably about 95. I think 95. you only hit 110 once. Yeah, I had a, I had a decent amount of hundreds. Yeah. Um, but 90, it probably averaged out to about 95, between 95 and 100. Same. Yeah, I was close to the same as well. Yeah, I think you had a couple more weeks at 110. A couple but extra at 110 just due to not racing. Yeah, but for the most part, you guys were hovering around 95 to 105 for the most part. Um, how did you feel you tolerated that mileage? Do you wish it was a little bit higher? Do you just want it more consistent at that mileage? I think I could bump up a little, but again, you don't want to push the envelope so far that you kind of uh, mess with what already is working. And so um, this worked pretty well for Chicago. So going into something that's going to be a little more difficult with the hilly Atlanta, um, you kind of have to, again, still find a balance with pushing the envelope on mileage and workouts and also adding hills into the mix. So I think that changes some things. I'm not too worried about pushing the high end of mileage, but if, I think I can more look at it as like, okay, I did four or five weeks at 100 or, or over. Like, can I now do six to eight weeks at 100 or over? Or can I do three 110s instead of one 110? And so I'm not in a hurry to run 120 miles a week because I see opportunities for made-up mileage just in some of those weeks where maybe I run 105 instead of 100. And um, that'll come, especially in this buildup, where you you're, may only race once, mm-hmm. where it's like you, you've got a half in January, but outside of that, it's like the mileage, once you guys get back up to what your peak is, we can almost consistently keep it there. Mm-hmm. Um, I brought the same point up with Jen. Like, Jen was max of 80 miles but most of us were 70 to 75 and so then it becomes this thing of like can we just be more consistent at having 80s which is still high for her this is still the highest she's ever been it's too easy to push the envelope especially with marathoning yeah and you guys being in your later 20s it's still early for marathoning that it's like we're so young young pups old life mm-hmm. yeah can i ask you a question yeah so i think we all entered as athletes into this marathon with serious anxieties and self-doubt over our marathon careers um, because we each had pretty profound failures. Um, what was your mentality like having presided over those failures? Did you have any insecurities or anxieties as a coach that were kind of put to bed in Chicago? Yeah, yes and no. This was, um, this was something I thought a lot about this past week too because – especially for yours, Noah, and Alex's, your first ones, you guys had such abbreviated buildups that, like, you couldn't look at it as, like, a true marathon buildup. So in the back of my head with those, when they didn't go well, you're just like, okay, well, they were so abbreviated, we didn't have a true buildup. The tougher ones to swallow was your Rotterdam and your grandma's. Because especially yours, Willie, at grandma's, your training had been so consistent for so long and so good and Noah, yours the same with the speeds of a lot of yours, that the expectation was so high going in that the confidence was there that you guys would run well. And so then when you run slower than you did in Chicago the first go-around, and when you end up fading as hard as you did after 20 it's just, at Grandma's, it's just you start looking at it like, okay, what are you lacking? So that's where I had to go back and start looking at everything that we had been doing. And – Honestly, like one of the biggest things that I did was, and I want to have him on the podcast here, was I had reached out to like a couple really good former pros back in the 80s, Benji Durden being one of those. And just looking at the overall times that the Americans had run consistently in history and the majority of the fastest marathoners in history came from the 80s. It's like, what are we doing wrong now? What is wrong with the philosophy that we're following? What are we lacking and missing that that uh, we should be incorporating that might make up the difference for that final performance. I had brought it up to you guys going into this buildup that when we sat down to kind of hash out what the philosophy might be going in, to me it was interesting that like you had a good buildup, 
you had an abbreviated buildup, Alex, and then Willie's, you had a really good buildup, and you guys all bonked around the same time between mile 18 and 20. So it's like, why is that the point where you, like, we know that people bonk at that point, but why is that being so consistently when the, the buildups had all been so different? And so it made me kind of reflect on, like, what should we add in more recovery? Should we add in longer stuff? Should we have in faster tempos or longer tempos? Like, it was things like that that a lot of these things had already been spinning in my head. So then when I was talking to Benji about what they used to do back in the 80s, it reaffirmed a lot of the direction I was already heading with the way that we were writing training. And so then going into this, I had a lot of confidence in where your guys' fitness was. But until you do it, that fear is still there that, okay, if all three of you bonk again, now what the fuck do we do? Because it, our training going into this cycle was so different than what we had done in previous buildups. And it was consistent. You guys were healthy. We knew that the groups would be there. The weather was going to be almost close to ideal with the exception of the wind in certain directions. So then it's just like, okay, it's so different from our previous philosophies of how we've structured that training that for me, I was, I was pleased with your guys' performances, but more it was a big sigh of relief because although it's not the A day that we envisioned for you guys down the road, it was a big step in having a more complete performance that then we can take a little bit more risks in training, whether it's more consistency at higher volume, whether it's a little bit more of those longer sessions that you guys are talking about to then push the performance envelope. And then it also hopefully gives you guys the confidence that like, okay, I can go out with that group and maybe I don't even need to wear a watch because now I'm racing the marathon as opposed to trying to time trial a marathon. And it becomes more of a trust of your own feeling of what that pace is, knowing that you can tolerate it, that then it's not even about what what the overall split is. It's just trying to feel out that rhythm early on and then be able to attack at that last 10K. So there's definitely aspects we still need to work on, definitely things that we can address I think there is obviously like with all three of you, with Jen, like there's things that we, we know that there could have been improvement where we left time on the table in general, even though it was such a positive in many aspects to then close it out and have the complete day. Then that becomes like, say we have a complete day that then puts you at 210 high. That puts you at 211. That puts you at 213 where we know that those days are there. And so now how do we, how do we get that? Like trials won't be the day to show that from a time standpoint, it's going to be one for racing, which will be more the fun aspect of, of competition. It sounds daunting to race 26 miles, but it's really going to be a second half race. And so it's like you're long running for half of it and then you're hitting it for half of it. But when we look ahead then to next fall, that's where the big challenge becomes of, okay, do we go again for the time? Do we go again for those big marathon performances where it's like trials, it's about racing and placing well? Um, and then do how, how much risk do we try to take in order to, to improve those performances? And that's where, like, you guys are still so fresh when it comes to that race of we're, we're regurgitating it now of just it being fresh in your minds. But those are things that are is going to be for you guys to think about when you try to decide what your next performance should be, do you go back to Chicago and try to recapture some of the lightning in the bottle? Do you go to a New York and try to race? Do you go overseas to the fast European ones to experience what that is like and try to go after a fast time? Like, and that's not to say next fall is the end all be all on that because you guys have multiple cycles beyond in your, in your careers that you can take risks at different opportunities but each one now becomes less about trying to make sure you just like check the box and hit that time. And it now becomes taking more of a risk to better yourself at an overall racer at that distance. But yeah, I, th I think overall it was a big sigh of relief just because I think it was a glimpse that like when Noah, you, when I, when you moved out, you did the Olympic trials, but you were not prepared by any means to run a marathon. And so Chicago was our first crack at it, unfortunately, with the Achilles. What You had 10 weeks of structured training going into it. 
to me, it was like, okay, it's our first taste of a marathon, but it wasn't really my first opportunity to coach the marathon in the truest sense. We had advice from Coach V Hill when it came to Aaliyah's marathon in the past, but not quite me riding the training as, as a whole. Same with you, Alex, with the Achilles injury this last fall. So really, Rotterdam and Grandma's, to me, I viewed as that true sense of a marathon block. And then with both going so poorly, you're just like, holy shit, like, we can, we've had good performances at 5K, 10K, half. Can we just not figure it out at the marathon? So that starts spinning through your head just as much as it does with you guys. Am I made for this event or am I not? But it also shows like you guys as athletes being able to put that aside for your ego of how bad that performance was and being able to rebound to have the confidence to know that, look, I can do this on the day just as much as it is for me as a coach of what we did wasn't working. And so we had to re restructure. It, it wasn't throwing away the plan. It was modifying things that we needed to improve upon. And I don't want to say that now we have the, the, the Bible of how you should approach marathoning because there's so many different ways that you can go about it. But it also shows that we're on the right track with incorporating the right stimuluses. And we need to figure out how to to close it out and also make those performances even faster. Because at a certain point, 211 for the US is gonna become 210 and 210 is gonna become 209. And so constantly raising your bar and expectation should be there, just like we saw career debuting at 207 this last weekend. Like that's raising a, a new bar of, you know those, the ADP guys are moving up in distance. 2020 is going to be a tough team to make. 2024 is going to be even harder. So it's it's one of those challenges that I think the marathon for me, you can see why some people don't like coaching it because so many things can impact the day and go wrong, even if you have the perfect buildup. But it's so intriguing because it's a levelizer of an event where not always the best person wins. We saw that at the Japanese Olympic trials a couple couple weeks ago. And you can see where you don't know what's happening in front of you. Galen Rupp on paper would have been the surefire top American for you guys going into Chicago. He ends up dropping out at 23. The unpredictability of the event makes it so intriguing. And it's also one of the most open events when it comes to a, an Olympic team to make. That it makes it a fun event to be a part of and to be able to coach as painful as some of those days might also go. Okay. I'll start with, I'll, so we got a couple questions from people that chimed in on social media. It's average. What's so average? My question. What's average? No. We're uh, going to have to cut all this uh, out now. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. How was my response? It was a long ramble, but. <laughs> it was long, but. It was rich. It, it was detailed, but yeah. it was yeah. adequate. Okay. We got. So on social media, we got a couple questions phrased to you guys. Some are funny and some are serious. So we'll start with a serious one. When you guys are as training as hard as you are, do you ever take a mental health day? That's a great question. Yes. And it's something that like, I mean, it is true. You guys way dictate your performances based on your finish and your time. And so when you're training as consistently and as hard over time as you do, and then the day may go well or may go poorly, it's tough to sometimes rebound from that. Is that question specifically for like before the race training, like training? Like so during training or after training? This, this sounds like it's during so training. training. My, my thoughts is actually, this is something that I kind of want to work on in the next buildups is because marathon training is so grueling and long and sometimes just lonely and dark and hard so that I think, I still do this thing where, like, if I'm so tired one day, I get so upset if I don't run as much as I really thought I should or, or want to. And it's fine to, to run super slow, to run not, like, not at all, or just to run however long that your body wants to. That's the point of recovery. And I think, and even mentally, not even, not even just physically, just mentally just taking a break, you know, one day, if it's just one day or one run, I think that's huge, especially in the marathon, because... Um, it's such, it's such a long training block. It's such a long race that you need to have that mental, um, strength when you need it and you can't always be on mentally. So I think that's, that's huge. You really need to kind of take that rest and recovery even more seriously when you're training for the marathon. Yeah. I think it was incredibly hard for me to turn it off 
And though I did take a couple days off to physically rest, I don't think I ever took any time off to mentally rest, especially looking back on a full year of marathon cycles now. Um, now that I have the benefit of being on some downtime in hindsight, I think I see how difficult the past year has been um, for a lot of relationships that I really cherish and how like I'm just totally unavailable when I'm training really hard and when I'm focused on a race and I just don't have anything to give to people. I think if I started prioritizing some days to just like put it down for a little while, those relationships would have a chance, you know, to still flourish in times of tra- in times of training. Whereas now they uh, they don't get the attention that they deserve because I'm like totally selfish and self absorbed with my training. Yeah, I mean, I think at some point, kind of like Noah said, you have to be selfish, but it also does kind of uh, take a toll. And so, you know, when you want to be all in, you should be all in. But that doesn't mean that you can't take time to take a step away and think, okay, like there's, this is big for me, but in the grand scheme of things, it's really small. Um, and so I really enjoy this build up. I actually feel like I showed up to just about every workout really excited to go to work. Uh, but that didn't mean that I would get, um, overworked mentally. And so whether it was driving up in the mountains, whether it was just taking some time to shut off from social media, um, that played a pretty big role in how I felt, um, going into either the next week of training or the next race, um, being able to reset like that is, is pretty important because it can quickly add up um, and become pretty overwhelming and you really don't want that leading into the race. You kind of want to be calm and collected and, and um, being able to just stay focused on the task so that when you're done, you'll be happy with it and then take a break and, and really um, take some downtime to regroup. Is there anything on that note, is there anything personally you guys do to help manage the anxiety and stress that comes along with training, self-worth when it comes to training, performances? You mean just mentally? Just tips, tips. That, uh, for people that might be struggling with similar similar stuff. Yeah, I took up a little more meditation this time around, and so uh, I was teaching a yoga class uh, at work. It actually became something that I decided I want to incorporate weekly, even when class was done. And so during that class, I did like 10 minutes, five to 10 minutes at the end of just, uh, I did a guided meditation. Um, and it really like played a huge part in how I felt the next day, which if I did the class on Tuesday and I'd have a workout Wednesday, I continued to have really, really great Wednesday workouts. And so I decided to make that kind of uh, a big part of my training and then also meeting with, you know, I started working with a sports psychologist a year ago, year and a half ago, and just being able to kind of walk through um, what's going on upstairs is in between the ears is, is pretty important in our sport. Um, so yeah, that helped me quite a bit. Yeah, different things work for different people, I think. Some people use therapy, yoga, meditation. Um, I think I'm still working out what works best for me, and I think... I was just, it's important to find what makes you happy and what really makes you feel relaxed and and to kind of just, uh, you know, if you need to like disconnect from social media, that's a really important thing to do. And what I do sometimes is I just like to listen to podcasts and not just worry about what's going on with work and running. And I also just, you know, uh, for me personally, calling my parents, I call my parents like almost every day to talk to them. And I think that's just kind of like, keeps me grounded, keeps me happy, keeps me relaxed, just knowing that they're there and I can talk to them about anything. And I think anyone can do that with anyone that they really care about. So everyone has something, you know, that they do that helps them, um, you know, get through, get through those times. But that's what, that's kind of what I do. Yeah. I'm no expert in detaching myself from my physical performance. Um, especially since this became my livelihood, I think I've put extra pressure on myself to perform, but you know, day to day, I've, get through it in, in various ways, but that's definitely a front of athletics that I have a lot of room to improve on. One of the quotes that I keep bringing up, I think I've brought it up with a couple of you guys and, and some of the other athletes on the team is compare comparisons, the thief of joy with social media being such a prevalent aspect of the sport. Now, how do you manage having to maintain some sort of persona on there while also being able to separate and focus on your own work at the same time, seeing 
other athletes, other groups posting workouts or videos or whatever it might be? That can be hard. In terms of maintaining a persona, I don't think that's very difficult as long as you're being honest to who you actually are. It doesn't have to be particularly draining. In terms of seeing other people's workouts, I think I've been doing this long enough to know that one great workout does not translate into a great race. And so, you know, anyone can post really sexy workouts out of context and, you know, people will think they're the man. But unless you are able to show up at a race and back that up, it's pretty meaningless. And so, you know, I come to respect the people who show up consistently um, so I don't get too freaked out when I see a random workout on Instagram anymore. I don't get too caught up necessarily in the workouts that are posted or what it has to do with relation to performance. Uh, but that being said, it is tough that, you know, probably 10 years ago, um, you know, contracts were given out primarily based on performance. And now it, a lot of it does have to do with how you're able to market yourself, um, what your presence is on social media and your following is. And for me, that's tough because I'm never going to be the person that, um, has that personality that gains millions of followers. That's just not um, something that I'm 100% invested in. I, I'm more worried about running fast. And so that part is tough to deal with because I think now you have to be able to do that. So I've kind of tried to find the line of posting enough to um, please others, but also be proud of what I'm posting, um, but not letting it consume me to the point where it gets in the way of performance. I still want to run because I love it. I still want to run because I love competing. And so, um, yeah, like Noah said, seeing the workouts, it's, it, that shouldn't really bother us um, because we're laying down solid workouts as well. That comparison shouldn't be there. But the comparison of, you know, others' followings, uh, that can be pretty tough to kind of wrap your head around with relation to um, livelihood in the sport. Yeah, that's a very prevalent issue today is, uh for me personally, I'm a very indecisive and easily influenced person. So that's why we're best friends. And Noah just tells me what to do. But that's why social media is so hard for me, is because I do struggle with a lot of this. Well, so. you also write novels, so probably. But I'll get to that. Wow. I do. I, I do. enjoy reading. No, them, that's your niche. Yeah. You're the novel guy. I'm just the novel guy. Yeah. So you're a novelty. The reason why I did that is because I've I've kind of switched it on <laughs> on, on everyone. Uh, everything's all beautiful and great in life on Instagram for most people. Um, I kind of just telling it how it is and really just like being honest on Instagram. And it's way too long. The captions are way too long. But if you hang out with me in real life, it's all jokes and wittiness and I don't care and it's fun. I try to have fun in real life, but Instagram is where I just kind of spill how I feel. So I've kind of switched it because that's just my way of like dealing with, you know, uh, social media today. And I think Noah has helped me in understanding uh, how to <laughs> post on social media because he really just tells me, like, just be who you are and be honest and, you know, just say how you feel and people will respond positively unless, you know, you're an asshole or something. But <laughs> I think it's important because I really just get way too caught up in what people think and how people feel. And you just got, you really have to work, it can take time, but you really have to work to detach away from those, those thoughts because they aren't true if you just you are if you are who you are then it'll be okay uh one question regarding the race for you guys if you could go back and change one decision during the race or before the race what would it be oh i got a good one so when bridget got back up to me at mile 21 ish or something 21 or 22 uh, the cars and the motorcycles were around i was right with them and i was like running right next to the two pacers and that was the exact moment I needed someone to race with, race against, latch onto. And I started to think about how I am in the way of a world record <laughs> happening. And there are cameras, and I felt like I was intruding. And I felt like I was in the way. And I don't want to say I got dropped purposefully, because I was hurting. I was starting to get tired, but... I definitely could have worked harder to stay there, I think. And I was like, oh, I'll just, I'll just run my pace for another mile or two, and then I'll hit it hard. But I think that moment I needed. I needed to go. And it was, you know, it was the way, it was, I was going for the top overall female, and I didn't. So I regret, I regret that. I don't think I made any mental mistakes because I accomplished goal number one, which was having a positive marathon experience. If I could do it again for fun, I probably would have... Um, 
pushed with those guys at like 21 miles or whatever and just would have seen what happened if I like really committed in the last 10k but um, I don't have any regrets yeah I just wish uh, I mean I think I was proud of the way that I was able to fight the last little bit when I was really hurting that being said I need to start feeling like I belong in these races I train like a madman but um, as far as racing goes I have still some things to learn and that means that I need to start putting myself with, uh, into these races versus just sitting in the back um, and being complacent. You know, I, I did that in Chicago just because I'm, I it was my second time in the distance, but I want to start being able to go to the front and, uh, you know, make a name for myself. That's, that's goal for me next time around. We're all works in progress. Yeah. Uh, how can I grow a mustache like the three of them? Oh, people notice that we like mustaches. Thank you. Yeah, mine only took a month. So. Commitment and support from your significant other. Yeah, very true. By the way, I had a co- I had multiple people compliment me in the race about my mustache. Congratulations! <laughs> Best part about today is your is is your significant other growing on the mustache? No, no, that is why it's shaved right now, and uh, I'll have to start growing it uh, come January again, so that I only deal with a month of griping. Mm-hmm. Uh, does Noah have extensions, and what type of conditioner does he use? Uh, no and no. You don't condition? No, I hardly even wash my hair. I don't condition either. That explains a lot. Yeah. <laughs> How did you each get curl- girlfriends way cooler than you? Your guess is as good as mine. Go to Gonzaga. <laughs> Go Zags. Couple drinks. <laughs> Great answers. Hardest training session leading up to the race for each of you? Oh, about 10 mile and then 2 mile. <laughs> the one I that was hard enough for me. So you had 10 miles at marathon pace and then 2 miles hard. 10 miles at marathon pace, 2 miles float, and 2 miles hard. Yeah. I think the one that was most difficult for me mentally was Alex and I did a 23 miler of... Uh, like six miles easy, eight, eight miles at six minute pace, and then eight miles where I think we averaged like around 505 pace. And that was pretty difficult just in terms of like starting the first eight mile rep. And even though the pace wasn't hard, just being like, okay, be really patient because this isn't going to get hard for 10 more miles. And I think that was a great uh, simulator for the psychology of the marathon. And so I took a lot away from that, being able to run my 22nd mile you know, at goal marathon pace or goal marathon effort, I was like, okay, cool. You know, like on the day I know I can get pretty deep because of what I just did. And so, well, it went well and it was never physically like devastating. I don't think any of my workouts really were. Um, and then like the mental boost I got from that was, was huge. Yeah. I think that was probably my hardest as well with what Noah mentioned. I, I did that same workout, but on my own and it went much better. And then I tried to do it again. And um, played around with the last eight miles and it backfired on me. I overcorrected after we had a slower mile and it was a stupid move, but I learned uh, a pretty good lesson that day. And, you know, Noah got me and the, instead of kind of crumbling, I decided to see how close I could keep it. Um, and that was a really good lesson for the marathon. Yeah, it's t- teaching patience, right? Because um, did you guys, uh, Shalane Flanagan obviously just retired, but did you guys read the story about her first workout with Bowerman? Have you guys seen this? So she did eight by a mile and she would get out way too fast on the first couple. And so Jerry would stop her partway through the repeat and make her start it again until Mm -hmm. she started it on pace because he said part of it is becoming a good marathoner is teaching patience. Yeah, it's huge. And it's so counterintuitive to what runners want to do. So marathon's so counterintuitive training sometimes that's a challenge for maggie and lexi right now it's get out hard and just try to hang on yeah but you guys looking at your your splits i mean you guys were fairly even split throughout other than the last couple and that's that's the aspect now we have to try to tackle so um we're what 16 17 weeks out from from trials you guys are enjoying a nice break right now and then we'll get back to work here in a couple weeks very proud of you guys it was it was a step in the right direction. No, it's no, it's not what we envisioned for the highlight of your career. But to me, it's a day that, like, I'll remember this day more than a lot of others, just because of what it meant for you guys taking a step forward, but also just having the consistency of everyone's performances across the board. So, 
Um, like I said, I took a big sigh of relief afterwards, but it was also like, it was a, it was a nice sigh of relief to just be, be happy for what it meant for you as a group. So nice job. Any final thoughts before we sign off here? No more questions. No more questions. Oh, shout out to Will Cross. Yeah, Will. Will Cross. So Will was one of our athletes that was in the ADP field. He debuted at the marathon and ran 217.30, punching his ticket to the Olympic trials. And now he wants to come out here and train with these guys. Who wouldn't? <laughs> All right. Well, nice job, guys. Proud of you. And we'll try to do one of these after trials. Love you. Love you, too. Alex. Love you. Love you. Love you. Love you. Love you. Love you. Love you.